0: Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm
1: joined by author Tom Parker. Tom wrote the fantastic book Avoiding the Terrorist Trap. And today we take a look at the events of September 11th and their legacy on
0: counterterrorism. I hope you enjoy this episode. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast.
1: Tom, welcome back to the podcast.
0: My
2: pleasure. Nice to be here. It's
1: good to have you back on. Just for the benefit of listeners who didn't hear our previous interview, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your kind of professional experience?
2: Absolutely. Um, It's quite an odd career. Um, I'm basically an investigator by training and background. I started out as an officer in the British Security Service in the 1990s, -hmm. spent uh, four years working for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia as a war crimes investigator working in the Balkans, served with the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq and then sort of took a bit of a left turn yeah. working for um, several different human rights organizations, including as the policy director for uh, terrorism, counterterrorism and human rights for amnesty, International USA. And I've done several stints with the UN since, and also as a, a consultant working in, uh, in Iraq for, for more than four years, for example, Uh, and also in Africa and a little bit in Latin America and Southeast Asia.
1: Excellent. Excellent. So we're here to talk today about the sort of 20th anniversary of 9-11 and its sort of legacy. So I was just wondering, I wanted to sort of start off with, how has 9-11 impacted you and do you have any memories of that day?
2: I have very, very strong memories of that day, actually, um, for for a variety of different reasons. I was uh, actually in Mostar in in Bosnia, Mm. but my wife and son were flying out of Boston that morning. Yeah. And so obviously, you know, the first I heard of the events of, of September 11th, you know, one of the things I heard was that it was a plane out of Boston that had flown uh, into the World Trade Center and my wife and son were flying from Boston to New York. So uh, that was panic number one. Um, my brother-in-law is a New York City firefighter. Yeah. So that was panic number two. Um, my in-laws wow. live <laughs> in lower Manhattan. Yeah. So that was panic number three. Um, and I was thousands of miles away. So uh yeah the 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 challenge uh for me immediately was to try and get hold and and uh find out uh what had happened and I always remember it was very hard to get through to to New York in the aftermath of the attack and and I remember getting hold of my sister-in-law and you know very very sensibly and and uh, very smartly not knowing how long the connection would last the, you know she answered the phone by just saying everybody's safe yeah then my my wife ended up uh getting back to uh, New York by train. And she is, uh, back then was an expert, or uh, very experienced person working at mass grave sites, particularly with families that hadn't been able to recover, um, the remains of their loved ones, uh, having worked in the Balkans, um, on mass graves and, and, and war crime stuff. So she went straight down to ground zero and volunteered, uh, working with family members uh, who, who lost in you know, first responders who'd been killed in the, uh, the events and, and spent the next, Three or four months working right down at ground zero with families. So it was very, very close to home. I knew um, a number of firefighters who died. Um, I'd actually been at a golf day two weeks beforehand with one of the firehouses that was wiped out. So yeah, I mean, it it, it was, it was a very, you know, it was, it was a, you know, obviously a a very impactful day. Um, The job that I was doing at the time was investigating uh, war crimes committed by Mujahideen volunteers in central Bosnia during the Bosnian conflict. These were Arab volunteers who, much like a, the Arabs that went to Afghanistan, had come to, to Bosnia in the early 90s to fight alongside the Bosnian government. Um, And a number of those individuals were people who went on to, to be sort of founding members of Al-Qaeda. So we also sat, found ourselves as a, as a team um, sitting on a lot of information about uh, individuals who... You know, could now be involved and active members of Al Qaeda. So, you know, professionally, right from sort of September 12th, we were uh, you know working in an area where there were were strong connections to the organization that had been behind the attacks. So, yeah, September 11th for me was was very uh, it was very much a sliding doors moment. Nothing. Was quite the same afterwards
1: yeah well thank you very much for sharing that. i mean crikey that's uh yeah you had a lot of connections there and that story about the the firehouse and then your wife um, having to assist with uh, what well, helping uh, volunteering to assist at ground zero um that must have been very hard for her and you were saying she was there for what, four months
2: yes no she i mean she's a professional social worker who specialized in you know she she'd worked in srebrenica and, uh, and in kosovo before so you know, she was uh, mentally prepared, you know, for, for, um, you know, what she encountered, I guess. But it's, of course, very different when it's your people in your hometown. And my wife's a New Yorker. Of course, she knew many of the firefighters because, you know, it's, it's a tight-knit community. And, uh, you know, we have family members in it. Um, then I have a, a nephew-in-law and a, mm. a, a brother-in-law who are both New York City firefighters.
1: Yeah, wow. So, um, with regards to then um, Al Qaeda, and obviously with your connection in Bosnia, what what sort of um, key things did you learn about how Al Qaeda, um, you know, were thinking? And um, what were they trying to achieve? And do you think the West has sort of fallen into, into their trap they laid? Well,
2: obviously, as the author of a book called Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, yes, yes I did think <laughs> uh, that, that uh, we fell into the trap that was laid for us. But to take your question very seriously and look at what do we know mm. about the planning uh, and the aspirations behind mm. the 9-11 attacks, the picture's a little cloudy. Um, you can find evidence to suggest that it was always the intention of bin Laden and al-Qaeda that they would provoke the United States into into an action like invading Afghanistan that would um, become mm-hmm. a quagmire for them. And you can find evidence to suggest they didn't anticipate that. Um, you know, History is messy and complicated. It's just possible that bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and, and people around them said different things to different people. Um, (laughs) you know, so it's, it's hard to know without sitting down and, you know, asking people who were in the room, what the thinking was at the time. Um, and many, if not most of those people are dead now with the exception of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and and a couple of people in Guantanamo. I, I think at best, it's hard to give a definitive answer. What we can say with certainty is after the fact, they certainly engineered a narrative to suggest that the idea had been to provoke the United States into invading Afghanistan, where it would ultimately come a cropper. Um, and you can find very explicit uh, references in Bin Laden's speeches to that concept. He has this uh, uh, parable that he tells about Bush. He says Bush is like the cantankerous old goat that kept. Digging up the knife that was eventually used to cut its throat, you know, which, which is obviously a a fairly heavy handed metaphor, but also in, 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 in online treaties like the administration of savagery, you can again see a deliberate articulation and detailed and thoughtful articulation of how this strategy would play out. So, you know, it's very hard to say with absolute certainty that Bin Laden's plan on the 9th of September was to to set a trap for the united states but what one can say with certainty provoking an overreaction for the authorities is a typical and central terrorist tactic and it Mm. wouldn't be remotely surprising that bin laden would be thinking in those terms because terrorist organizations typically always think in those terms
1: yeah yeah and and I guess from bin Laden's point of view, there was no guarantee that um, all of the planes would have been successful, because just looking at the kind of coverage that's been um, shown in the last few days, obviously, we know about the three planes that were successful, the two that hit the Twin Towers, the one that hit the Pentagon, and then there's talk of a fourth and possibly even a fifth plane um the and in the fourth plane which um was uh united 93 i believe and that was sort of taken down by passenger action there's still debate to where that plane was intending to go was it intending to go to the white house or somewhere else you know and it's um if it had hit the white house i wonder I wonder what the other response could have been. I mean, I, I I don't know. It's an interesting one.
2: I think the likelier target would have been the Senate. Yeah, uh, it, Washington was certainly the target. I think they were they were heading in that direction and had turned clearly mm. to, to to a heading that would have taken them to Washington. I, when you hear aviation experts or experienced pilots talking about the difficulty that it would uh, that that an inexperienced pilot would have had hitting a target that is ultimately as small as the White House you know you you think of the situation of the senate, the the senate you know the, the the senate building which is you know at the end of a very clear visible mall um you know that then it's obviously on a hill Capitol hill and it's it's a very prominent target i think it it would have been an easier target to actually hit but um again there's mm-hmm. no certainty as to what that ultimate target was i don't think the impact would have been different particularly different right if it had been the senate yeah. or the white house um again you know yeah. the, they they hit the you know, a symbol of American financial power. They'd hit a symbol of American military power. I think it's entirely logical they would have tried to have hit a symbol of political power as well.
1: Sorry, very random question. Do we know if uh, Bin Laden was a Tom Clancy fan? Because Tom Clancy <laughs> wrote a book in which a plane did hit uh, the Senate Building, but it was um... flown by a Japanese
2: pilot. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. I, I have read the book purely because of that connection. Yeah, yeah, and, th- and there there were, of course, instances. I forget, was it the Clinton White House where somebody landed a plane or flew a a small Cessna onto the White House grounds? Yeah. So, you know, there there had been histories. But more significantly, I mean, first off, I think the first response would be it wasn't Bin Laden's plan, it was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's. And Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had actually played with um, a sort of a, a different precursor plan called the Bojinka plot which was a plan to hijack or uh, actually get bombs onto about seven to nine airliners flying out of um, Southeast Asia during, I want to say, out of the Philippines during a visit by the Pope. And they actually did a dry run for this plot, which successfully got a device onto an airliner, I believe a Japanese airliner, which detonated and killed the passenger under which the bomb had been hidden. Um, but did not bring down the aircraft. I, I think that was in nineteen ninety-five, if I remember correctly. So, you know, the genesis of, of the nine eleven attacks goes back quite a long way. Now, that was an attempt to bring down multiple airliners, and the idea of multiple airline hijackings goes back to the Dawson's Field operation by the PFLP mm. back in the nineteen seventies, um, where there was the simultaneous hijacking of four airliners, mm. but they were all taken well, three of them were taken to the same landing field, Dawson's Field in Jordan, an old RAF station. And if I remember rightly, I think the fourth was too large to land at that airfield and, and ended up somewhere in North Africa. Um, but you know, you, you can see sort of precursors or echoes in history that, that would have informed some of the thinking, I guess, for, for, for the people planning out 9-11. They wouldn't have had to have turned to fiction for inspiration. There were. You know, real life events that, that that had happened within their community's memory, that would have certainly prompted some of the ideas that they had. And I, you know, I think I'm right in saying the first attempt to use an aircraft as a weapon by a terrorist group would be social revolutionaries, socialist revolutionaries in Russia in nineteen nineteen oh five, nineteen oh six. Yeah, there's a there's an attempt, a very early attempt to use a Uh, a biplane. And it is not successful, but uh, there there is a plot. I've never been able to find that much out about it. There's a passing reference to it in a book about uh, the terrorists because uh, Russia in the the early 20th century was swept up. And for that matter, the Mm -hmm. late 19th century was swept up in quite violent, wide ranging terrorism, anarchist and socialist in origin and reactionary uh, fascist terrorism from the black hundreds. I mean, thousands and thousands of people were killed. And that's, that's one incident that I've seen reference to. Interesting. Interesting. Well, thank you for that. So
1: um, I suppose one big question here is, do you think the threat of Islamist-inspired terrorism was overblown post 9-11? Um,
2: that's a great question. I think you'd have to say no. I can't think of any terrorist attack in history that becomes remotely close in terms of impact and just in terms of death toll and loss of life as 9-11. Yeah. I mean, the 9-11 attacks are by an order of magnitude worse than, than any terrorist attack carried out by any other terrorist group in history. Um, so it's difficult to overplay the significance of that. You know, if you look at the death toll of more or less 3,000 people, you know, killed on the 9-11 attacks, that's actually more than was killed in the, the, the number of people killed in the Pearl Harbor attacks. Um, although the number's quite similar. I mean, it, it, it was, Mm. a tremendously significant attack and made all the more significant, I think, by the fact that it kind of came out of a literally and metaphorically clear blue sky. Yeah, I don't think you can underestimate that. It was an incredibly purposeful and dramatic act. And any country having received, been on the receiving end of an attack of that nature would have been compelled to respond mm. as if it had been attacked by a hostile state. That doesn't mean I think that's the appropriate frame within which to respond, just that it's entirely logical that a state would respond in that way. And I and I think the very fact that it had so many kind of parallels with um I've thought about, you know, often reflected about this. It has so many par- parallels with the Pearl Harbor uh, experience. You know, a, you know, an enemy, albeit the Japanese didn't declare war and Bin Laden had actually declared war twice. Um, but it still has that yeah. feeling, right? It's a surprise attack. But the death toll's the same. It kind of drags America into a conflict it hadn't wanted to be directly engaged in. Um, it, you know, we we make decisions by analogy. You know, there's a lot of the social psychology research on this by a range of you know sort of academics specializing in in, in social psychology, psychological approaches to to, to decision making. And you know, we we know that presidents and prime ministers. Often make decisions by using analogies that that sort of give them a shorthand for understanding situations that they face. Probably the most famous example is is Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the number of times in cabinet discussions that you know the um, is it called the XCOM, the the, the executive committee that's uh, running the response to the to the crisis. The number of times in debate they reference you know the the the, the Munich Crisis. Um, and you know Hitler's threats on the Sudetenland and uh, you know invasion of the Rhineland and and the comparisons with Hitler and the fact that appeasement allowed him to grow in strength and strengthen is this that moment? Is this the moment we should stop? And of course, using Nazi Germany in nineteen you know thirty eight as a way to understand the Soviet Union in the nineteen sixties is probably not the most useful prism to look through. But no. nevertheless, <laughs> it's no. and you know it, it helps people reach decisions. Um, it was fairly similar, I believe, with Eden and uh, the Suez crisis and the way that he, you know, the framework or the, the, the lens that he used to try and understand NASA was very similar. You know, he, the, again, the comparisons with Hitler. And, you know, I, I think the same thing happens in the counter-terrorist context. I mean, we reach for, ex- you know, experiences that we, 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 we have and we understand to make sense of something new. I mean, how many times does one hear? you know, in the UK. I mean, I, I remember, I think it was um, after the 7-7 bombings where uh, the, the, the commissioner of the police, Sir Ian Blair, said, oh, it's been a, you know, it's been a terrible day, but it's not the Blitz, right? And how many times do to British policymakers and politicians <laughs> yeah. reference that World War II experience as a way of, you know, as a useful shorthand or comparison for? Locating something in the, the 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 panoply of threats, you know. So I, I I don't think the way that the United States responded, or the the way it treated Al Qaeda as a threat, was necessarily unsurprising or indeed inappropriate. It was the manner in which it responded or acted on that identification of the threat that perhaps. Well, not perhaps is where I think it went wrong. Yeah. And,
1: and well, you know, a lot of commentators are, uh, you know, have been reflecting on the past of 20 years and we've just had the recent withdrawal from Afghanistan. We've had the, um, droning, um, of what was supposed to be an ISIS K person. It may have turned out to be an innocent person. We've got obviously the legacy of drone warfare. You've got, um, Guantanamo Bay, all sorts of, uh, things that have gone on that have sort of, um, helped I suppose, al-Qaeda propaganda uh, in many respects. And um, and so it's, 20 years later, one has to ask himself, what could Western security services have, or even in particular the CIA, have done better to tackle the threat from al-Qaeda and obviously now the more recent threat from ISIS?
2: Two different questions there, because of course the CIA is not a security service, it's an intelligence service mm. and, and has a different role uh, to play. I think domestic security services responded uh, quite well, actually to the threat and quite appropriately Mm, mm. within the context of uh, Western Europe, certainly. I think the FBI also responded quite appropriately. I I think there are some issues around entrapment that, that are worth exploring, but the FBI essentially used the law enforcement tools at its disposal within a law enforcement framework to respond to the threat. And it did so, I think, really quite successfully. You know, one of the important takeaways from the 9-11 Commission report, it wasn't a lack of tools that resulted in the American intelligence community's failure to pick up on the 9-11 attacks and the planning of the 9-11 attacks. It was a failure within the intelligence establishment to successfully communicate the intelligence that did exist with the people, you know, and, and bring the people that needed to know it or could act on it into the room so that they could join up the dots. Um, the dots yeah. had been recovered. You know, they, they had the dots. What they weren't able to do was effectively analyze the dots because they didn't have the right people in the room seeing the dots. And that didn't require new laws, new powers, new, 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 more sophisticated equipment. It required better cooperation. And I think, you know, one, one thing that the UK does incredibly well is cooperation. I think we have a, a very, a very well connected intelligence and security establishment, probably more so than, than almost any other country in the world, certainly up there with any I can think of. You know, the United States, it's more complicated. You know, the United States security establishment, you've got 20,000 plus police forces. You've got 50 states. You've got, you know, uh, 24, 25 federal intelligence services. You know, it's, it's a much harder beast to get your arms around. But the mm, UK, mm. where you only have a, you know, single figures. Number of players, it's much easier. And, you know, the organizations are much smaller and the cabinet architecture controlling those organizations is more evolved. So, you know, I, I think we, we, we do that sort of thing well. Where you see breakdowns in the British security response, it tends to be one of capacity rather than capability. Um, you know, where, you know, I think Eliza Manning and Buller pointed, put it very well. She said there are acute challenges of prioritization. Right. You can't follow everybody. You do have to make choices. You're not always going to make the right choices. Um, and I, that's understandable. I mean, I, I, you cannot be prescient all the time, but you know, in, in a week where MI5 publicly stated that, that it prevented what 35 attacks in the last three or four years, yes, you know, that, that's a pretty, pretty good track record. Um, you know, and assuming that they're reporting accurately. And frankly, I, have no reason to, to think that they wouldn't be. So, you know, I mean, I, I think the security side of things has been pretty good. I think one of the reasons it's been pretty good is when you're operating within a domestic sphere, you, oper- you have to operate within your own legal system. So you have legal constraints that stop you from making the kind of mistakes that we see external services making. And that's where we come to the CIA in your question. Um, yeah. and of course, operating yeah. overseas in secret, in the shadows, out with the law, out with oversight becomes a lot easier to do the kind of things that actually blow back on you really rather badly. Like, for example, the use of coercive interrogation in black sites. Um, and, and I think that that's where you see. Many of the critical mistakes that were made in the aftermath of 9 11. And there, I think our response has been very counterproductive.
1: It's becoming very popular today to paint kind of Western counterterrorism with regards to 9 11 as just racist. Um, and I was just wondering if that's. If that's fair, because I don't know, I f- I find like if if your enemy is presenting themselves as um as Muslims and identify as Muslims, then it's difficult not to want to then you know target Muslims. So I don't know, it, it, it's I don't know if you had any sort of thoughts on on that and that interpretation of things.
2: I, I think that the, the short and unsatisfying answer is yes, it is, and no, it isn't. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. I think your observation is accurate to the sense that if you are fighting. or or being attacked by an enemy that uses a narrative based in faith to justify their actions, it's going to be very hard to get your arms around that problem without that faith being an element of how you think about it. Mm. But at the same time, that is also going to drive prejudices. Um, You you are likely to make assumptions based on very little or flawed knowledge of other cultures. And in responding in an overbroad manner, you're you're likely to make the situation worse. There's The concept um, coined by um, uh, an academic called Paddy Hilliard called suspect communities, right? That, that you know, you, if, if by creating a, a threat and a, and a counter to that threat, you create a community of people who suddenly find themselves lumped in with the actual threat, which is always a fringe of a fringe and a total minority within that community. But it becomes very difficult to have a response to that community without you know, making decisions that are based in very generic, wide-ranging, swinging thinking. And mm. you know, we did exactly the same thing in Northern Ireland, and that's what Hilliard was talking about. He was talking about the the, the creation of a Catholic or nationalist or Republican suspect community in Northern Ireland um, through legislation that focused on prescription of predominantly Catholic organizations or nationalist or Republican organizations. Was that racist? I don't think that would be the correct term for that, but it's the same phenomenon that that you're kind of referencing here um and i think as um an analyst you'd have to accept that race and gender and ethnicity are always part of the equation and it can play a positive and a negative role in both the way that people act and the way that people respond to those actions um and and i think you know part of an effective policy is understanding those biases in yourself and resisting them, particularly when they are going to be counterproductive. We all have them, mm. you know, the unconscious biases of all sorts of different types, you know, based on our past experience, our community's folk memory, I mean, and all the rest. And the institution, you know, the institutions of modern society. I mean, all of these things create, you know, trammeled thinking and again, shortcuts and, and you know, stereotypes and yes, the, the allocation of of, you know, false narratives to to communities, faiths, populations. So, I mean, I think you would have to have a conversation about how race was part of what happened, but it was on both sides, right? I mean, you know, you can't talk about, you know, know, the Zionist imperialist enemy and, you know, uh, the the various, you know, epithets that that, groups like Al-Qaeda use about Jews and Westerners and Zion crusaders and all of that you know it's it's just as racist i mean that's the thing and you know, i've i've spent you know almost 4 years of my career working in africa and almost 4 years of my career working in the middle east and 4 years of my career working in the balkans they were all racist places right you know i mean every society has it every society has its in groups and its out groups its biases those biases are more powerful and more dangerous when you are more powerful and more dangerous, hence the, you know the concept of white supremacy and the, the damage done by white supremacy. but it doesn't give other groups a pass you know we 're all responsible for our own actions, and we 're all responsible for the way that we see the world and the way that we interpret the events around us and I think what I would say is that any good investigator and any good intelligence officer tries hard to understand. The biases that um, inform particularly instinctive reactions, and tries to put them aside and be more analytical in their approach, because yeah, that's the best way to understand the other side. It, it's you can't understand somebody using stereotypes, right? Because they lack they lack nuance. Um, you know, so to be effective in your counter-terrorist response, you have to get beyond those kind of biases and prejudices. And I think good investigators, good intelligence officers do. And there's a lot of them. So, you know, if you're asking me, do I think that the police, well let's say the security service is institutionally racist, I, I think that would be an unhelpful description because I think they spend a lot of time thinking about those issues. But inevitably, you know, they are, you know, just as we all are, prisoners of their background culture and and, and, and inherent mm. biases. So You know, I mean, yes and no. It's a very unsatisfying answer. But I think it's facile to try and say, you know, one side's bad and the other side's good or one side's enlightened and the other side's prejudiced. I mean, it's just that's not how the world works. We all have prejudices. Um, Our position in society, our privilege, if you like, you know, means that some people's privileges, some people's biases can do more damage than others. But even that's contextual, right? You know, I mean, you know, Al-Qaeda didn't murder Westerners because of the things, a lot of the Westerners that they murdered because of the things those individuals were doing, right? They murdered them because they were representatives of their community. You know, that's a form of prejudice too, right? And a form of stereotyping too. So I don't know. I, I, I I think it's important to be aware of the significance of these issues when you're dealing with complex problems, I don't think it's it's particularly helpful to, to to hurl insults at people if that's how it's being used. What is always helpful is to try and promote understanding, right? Mm. You know, and, and, mm. and try to cut through the crap and, and and try and have real connections between people based on what, what you know the values that those people are representing and, and, and want to and, you know uh, want to project. And I think that's you know that that's always a challenge for everybody. Um, but I do think that intelligence officers, and investigators, they are in the business of trying to, to see past that. You know, you can't be a good intelligence officer if you don't. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I think it's I think it's an important issue to raise, um, and I think it's an important issue to think about. But I think it has to be thought about in the round.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely, I agree. Because no, it's just I've noticed today it's just very popular, mainly on. Twitter and obviously, um, you know, around the current sort of race debates that are going on, and and obviously these very important debates because obviously there's been some dreadful things in the states and sometimes mm-hmm. Britain too of the police involving, you know, sort of minority communities and they've behaved very badly. Um, and now you know, sort of the intelligence services now under uh, and security services are kind of being painted that brush too, and I just find, and it, and I feel like it, there's some bits where it's fair and some bits where it's not.
2: I think that's right.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no I just get the impression there's a lot of nuance missing from these debates these days.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, but, uh, but I mean, I, but it is also an important conversation mm. to have, because, mm. you know, with you know there, there are those people out there that want to profile, right? And, and that's, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, of course, you know, one way in which you know, quite easily you can see prejudices come into play. Um, in a way that 's tremendously unhelpful and and again only makes things worse, so you know i mean I, I think from every perspective it's it 's worth considering these kind of criticisms, not least because if people are raising it, they feel it to be true, and so you have failed to carry those voices along with you so you, you probably mm. should be worried about that mm. you know mm. if somebody 's telling you that they feel singled out and they feel like they 're on the receiving end of racism and prejudice. Yeah, there's a reason for that. Yeah, you know, um, and so you 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 definitely want to explore that mm. and, and try and understand it. Mm. But it's you know, as you say, it's, it's it's also a label that can be thrown around. Mm. What I always want to see is the evidence, right? And I want mm. to see the, the you know the the, the the and I don't know enough, frankly, about the scene in the UK uh, these days, having not lived in the UK for 20 years to to to, to comment on it authoritatively. But um, look, I mean, I, I think you should always listen to criticism, right? because they might be right. <laughs> you know? And so it's, it's, it's never a bad idea to listen to people who are telling you you're not doing something well, yeah. because, you know, as I say, there's a possibility you could be doing it much more much more effectively and much better. Um,
1: we may have already answered this, actually, but um, did the security services and intelligence services get anything right in its response to the terrorist threat from al-Qaeda and ISIS?
2: So, I, uh, as I said before, I actually think they've done a pretty mm. good job. And, you know, I mean, what's what's become quite obvious over the last 15 years has been the degree to which the Western intelligence services were able to penetrate Al-Qaeda mm. far more extensively than I think was, was uh, you know, initially appreciated. And using That's using human assets, people like Amin Dean or, or Morton Storm. Um, you know, the, these were very well-placed assets that were reporting on exactly the kind of people you would want well-placed assets to be reporting on. So I, I think that there were definitely some reversals, the Hassan Balawi case, uh, where, where the, um, uh, the, I think it was uh, uh, the Pakistani Taliban were able to turn uh, a CIA asset, a Jordanian CIA asset, and use them as a suicide bomber mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. his handlers. You know, that, that's probably, you know, the most high profile example of a failure, but there have been a tremendous number of intelligence successes. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, if you look at electronic intelligence gathering as well, um, ISR platforms, um, the, the, the ability to surveil, um, huge areas from the sky, you know, I mean, that, that, there, there has hmm. been, an incredible degree of intelligence gathering success, I think, over the last 15 years. As is what, as is so often the case, the real challenge is, what do you do with the intelligence? You know, and, and in that sense, I think we've, we've seen rather more missteps. But when it comes to intelligence services doing the core tasks that intelligence services excel at, which in the security services cases are you know, is investigations and, you know, and in, in external services, Uh, intelligence acquisition. I think you'd have to say the track record of most Western intelligence services has been pretty good. Mm.
1: And one of the obviously downsides of intelligence is that successes can't always be reported, can they? But failures can.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I I think most agencies are quite keen to find ways to report their successes, actually, obviously, without uh, revealing their assets and their sources and, and making sure that they protect and guard you know, ongoing sources of intelligence. But at the same time, I mean, you get funded because you're successful. And when your failures are public, you want to make damn sure that the people that need to know about your successes are made aware of your successes. And, and there are mechanisms within Whitehall for doing that. And I'd imagine there are, mm. in, you know, in, 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 in other countries as well. Yeah. And um,
1: what kind of key lessons have been learned with regards to counterterrorism policy that's sort of enacted today?
2: That's a couple of different ways to unpack that question. I I, I think the first Hmm. is to say that history teaches us that we're not very good at learning lessons. (laughs) Even if we learn them in the short term, in the long term, we tend to disregard and forget those lessons. So I, I would... Query the first assumption in this question that that is just because we have learned some lessons that these lessons will stick. They probably won't, you know, if if history is any guide. But I I think that it's the same lessons we always learn, right? That that torture doesn't really produce information. It alienates people. It alienates the population. It disgusts your own citizens, and and it degrades the institutions that, that that that. to use it and the people that use it. Mm. Killing people is not an easy route to victory. That There's very rarely a finite number of people you have to kill to win. That is because terrorist organizations are dynamic. There's always people joining and leaving. Um, But also people join for a reason. And if your behavior is the reason why they are joining, then if you continue that form of behavior, you're going to have more people join the terrorist organization, right? So if you're seen as a brutal imperial power and your response to that is to extend your power into foreign countries, then probably you're just going to create more terrorists. There's a great quote from um, uh, an interview with an al-Qaeda asset by Amaryllis Fox, who's a former CIA officer. Um, She was a clandestine service officer, and I think she ran for Congress. But she wrote a book about her experiences, and she has this lovely conversation where she's talking to to a a, a recruitment target, I think it is, uh, in al-Qaeda, and the the Al Qaeda guy says to her, he "says You Americans, you love your movies, you know, you have know, Star Wars and uh, you know Indiana Jones, but uh, you know, but but you know, the mistake you make is that you think you are Luke Skywalker. You think you're Han Solo. You're not. You're the Empire. We're Luke Skywalker. We're the rebels. And that's quite an interesting way of looking at things, um, and it's quite an important insight." Because everybody's the hero of their own story, right? Mm. You know, narratives only have sustainability if they're powerful, enduring, and most importantly, basically true. You know, you can you can spread lies, but ultimately lies, what was Churchill's famous, you know, phrase that a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth puts, pulls its trousers on.
0: Yeah. I mean,
2: (laughs) there's truth in that. But I think, you know, the thing about truth is it is actually quite hard to tear down over the long term. You know the the, the 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 counter cliche will be the truth will out, and you know lies ultimately they can fool people one or two times, they can fool a small minority of people for an extended period of time, particularly if they play to their mm, their prejudices, mm. but ultimately you know nine times out of ten what wins these conflicts is who wins over the great mass of undecided people, uh, you know the 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 people who have got open minds who are willing to be persuaded about which side is more right than the other side. And you ultimately do that with truth, most powerfully. Uh, You you might get short-term hits with lies, but over the long term, what people can see for themselves, taste for themselves, you know, have confidence in, those are going to be the things that they will make decisions based upon over the long term. Um, And so, you know, ultimately, I think it's really, really important that we understand the arguments that fuel terrorist recruitment, and people you know support for terrorist organizations because they're usually grounded in some compelling facts right you know if you're mm-hmm. if you're a palestinian mm-hmm. living in in the gaza strip it's pretty easy to see a compelling rights based justifiable narrative why you you should be pretty angry about your situation and why violence may be the only way to change it and that doesn't make that violence right and i really don't believe it does but it does make that violence understandable. And you can't solve the threat based on that narrative until you understand it.
1: Mm. One just quick thing back to what you were saying earlier about lessons not being learned. Do you think that's down to institutional memory and people and turnover of people within the various services over the years?
2: I think that's part of it, for sure. Yeah, um, I, I think that a lot of the missteps are basically – Intuitive and Mm. makes sense to human beings. The idea that if I punch people in the face or I scare people, they will tell me the truth. You know, it makes some sort of intuitive sense, right? Um, I think our culture plays a role in this. You know, when did you last see a TV show about a police officer where the police officer played by the rules, right? They're always mavericks. They're always fighting against the system. They're always going outside the lines, right?
1: Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, they they make a big thing about red tape, don't they? Yeah.
2: Wait, wait, you know, no police officer ever says, you know what? I really think we should follow procedure here. There's solid reasons why we have these procedures in place. Mm. We need to respect the rights of the suspect because let's face it, he is innocent until proven guilty. A speech I have never heard in a cop show ever. Yeah. Right. You know, they're they're all crazy mavericky types who, you know, haven't got time to follow the rules, you know? Mm. Um, that stuff does infect society at a fairly profound level. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, if you look at the movies that are made about the classic example, Zero Dark 30, you know, a very good movie about, um, the, the, the Bin Laden raid. Mm. Um, you know, it's compelling. It's wonderfully filmed and it has a whole section about how torture works and how the CIA effectively torture people for information. It's absolute bullshit. I mean, it's com- completely untrue what's represented in the movie. Mm.
1: On, on your notes about popular culture and um, and violence, I vaguely remember and I could be wrong in this memory, but I'm pretty sure I'm not, when the Abu Abu Grave, those terrible events happened, apparently some of the soldiers had mentioned the TV show 24 and Jack Bauer's character um, not necessarily as a direct influence because it'd be unfair to put that on Kiefer Sutherland's shoulders, but or uh, well, the creators of that show, but they certainly, you know, sort of seeing that kind of, you know, his character his willingness to torture and do sort of things on a weekly basis and sort of break the rules certainly was a, a point of inspiration for some of the events that happened, uh, some of the abuses that happened among soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, so I have heard of that. I'm not 100% sure how accurate that is, because that was a long time ago I heard that and I read that somewhere. There was certainly a lot of talk of that, and I think there's a lot of interesting things to be said about the connection between popular culture and um, not just violence, but also misunderstandings about how things work. You know, because I've spoken to some very, what I think are intelligent people who, who, you know, think that MI5 go around assassinating people who are of um, an inconvenience to them. <laughs> and I'm sure um, there may be some MI5 officers who would love to be able to do that, but I, I don't think they can. <laughs> and I don't think they do. So, you know, and I think a lot of that's inspired by popular culture.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think popular culture can. Encourage people to, to, to commit abuses. You know, I mean, uh, we were talking earlier about the, the way that people use analogies to, to, to inform decisions. Um, you know, and we talked about how that might be misleading if your analogy is grounded in a historical context that's different to the one you're facing. Well, it's an even more dangerous strategy when you know, the analogy you're using is based in fiction mm, or fantasy. Mm. So, I, you know, I, I I think there's definitely an issue with the way that popular culture handles issues like interrogation. And, you know, there there have been efforts by human rights organizations, I think most notably Human Rights First, that actually had a project where they reached out to Hollywood screenwriters, brought an experienced military and police interrogators to talk to them about how, you know, what, what actually does work in the real world rather than what is dramatically powerful. But in the movie Zero Dark Thirty, when the scriptwriters were challenged, about their made-up uh, example of torture working in the movie, the defense they ultimately offered was it was more dramatically satisfying rather than the truth, which was actually torture, I hadn't produced any information that was relevant to the about raid. In fact, in the real world, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was waterboarded and asked questions about Bin Laden's career and lied to cover up his identity and his significance. So, in fact, in the real world, they, they're using... You know, waterboarding as a technique to elicit information produced the contrary effect of the one they were looking for. So, you know, I mean that 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 is very very frustrating for career professionals uh, when they see the you know the, the Hollywood tales on television. And and of course it does influence people. You know, it it influences people. There was a case in New Orleans recently uh, where a policeman was in a car chase and he drew his weapon. And fired through his windshield at the car in front now this is you know in the real world well no police officer in their right mind would ever do that right not least because you know the bullet's going to get deflected when it hits the wind, mm. the windshield mm. now john wick does that yeah. you know and arnold schwarzenegger and bruce willis but in the real world you don't fire your weapon like that while you're bouncing around in a car you know and then there's people around i mean it's it's an act of madness um, but again, it, you know, it's the sort of thing that, that that sort of comes out of watching too many movies and then you know, imagining yourself in, in 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 that kind of role. So I think you can lay a little bit of blame at Keith Sutherland's door, but but no more at his door than anybody else in Hollywood that's producing movies, you know, where they they use these kind of very thoughtless. See, you know, I, I don't think there's there's any ill intent behind it. I think it is mostly driven by narrative and drama. But the problem is it does seep into the public consciousness and it does create false impressions of of what does and doesn't work.
1: Massively so. I mean, you see it even in shows that um, you know shows that are not particularly violent as well. I might mean, even seen it in superhero films that happens often. I think it was Daredevil. I was watching the first series where the lead character does something to someone, and I and I and as a filmmaker myself, I mean I I, I call that lazy writing. is this sort of dramatic shorthand that people use. They do it the same with sex scenes as well, and you know and there's been a lot of debate in the last few years about the the way sex scenes are used in films. And there was a debate at one time um, about of torture and violence in films. But I think that debate seems sort of, I don't know, it kind of comes up and disappears and comes up again. But um, it is a constant battle. It is a battle. It's trying to find that balance between being uh, entertaining, but at the same time not doing kind of, I don't know, long-term damage because we're in the business of mass communication. And it's something I... I maybe over worry about these things sometimes but i take it as a big responsibility when you're in the business of mass communication if you're making a film that feels realistic and then characters start doing something like they were in zero dark 30 for dramatic purposes i feel that's kind of a bit morally repugnant personally
2: but and it's so unnecessary because it's not like the about a bad raid is an unexciting and non-dramatic story yeah it's you know it's it's one of the most impressive military special operations of all time. He didn't really need it, you know. So I think it, in that film of all films, it's particularly gratuitous. Mm. But and, and and you know, the, with that heavy dose of irony, that that it's the exact opposite of what actually happened.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know. With that one, it's such a strange one. It was, uh, yeah, yeah. It's a very strange film. I rewatched it not long ago, actually, and and uh, and it it just totally taints the film that beginning because uh, it is a very interesting story.
2: It does. isn't it, and it's a good film and in mm. fact we use some of the clips from that film particularly the searching of um bin laden's mm. uh bin laden's house mm. um because that's mm. there's a big debate at the moment about battlefield evidence collection mm. um and what sort of standards sh- troops in the field should be held to uh when they collect evidence mm. um and you know one of the things i always say is there's no fbi agents on the about about right you know when when the um the, the Navy SEALs go into the house, right? They're soldiers carrying and executing a military mission. They grab a bunch of stuff. They put it in bin liners. They take it back to Bagram Air Base. That's when law enforcement gets involved. Well, intelligence folks mm. first and then law enforcement. And that doesn't invalidate what they brought back. You just simply collect statements from them about where they got it from. And, you know, you can see that they're photographing the scene. And, you know, there, there's plenty of evidence to take to a courtroom about the provenance of what they have recovered. Um, and thus, its reliability and value as ever you know, it's it's very interesting. It's 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 one of those movies that, as you say, I mean, it's it's tainted by one unnecessary scene. Mm. Otherwise, I think it's really good. Yeah, yeah.
1: Is Islamist inspired terrorism as a greater threat to the United States and the West today as it was perceived twenty years ago?
2: No, I don't think so. Um, I don't think it's 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 over as a threat, and I still think it is a very significant threat. I do think. It never was an existential threat, and it certainly isn't an existential threat now. I don't think you can say quite the same thing about right-wing extremist terrorism in the United mm. States, which has far deeper roots in American soil, going back to the Ku Klux Klan and the Red Shirts, and you know the period after Reconstruction in in, in um, the, the American South, you know through subsequent iterations of the Klan in the, the early 1900s and in the 1950s and 60s, and you know as we've seen you know, in in January the 6th. Now, I wouldn't call the storming of the Capitol terrorism, but there's evidence of the very real and present threat that right-wing extremism poses to democratic governance in the United States. It's a very powerful illustration of the damage that this fringe movement could do. And because they are from within American society and they are embedded in American institutions, including in the police and the military, and for that matter, in the House of Representatives, um, to a lesser extent the Senate, and in the White House. You know, you, you you have people who are prepared to countenance, you know, lies about the outcome of an election and overthrowing a democratically elected president. That is the very definition of an existential threat to American democracy. And that is the that is a, a threat from within, not from without. Mm. You know, so that that's the phone call coming from in that inside the House. And that's far more frightening to me than, than you know, the the very real threat posed by terrorist groups on the other side of the world whose best efforts at hurting us will be expeditionary because they aren't living and embedded in our societies in the same way that the right-wing extremists are. And so, you know, I, I think it's a very significant threat. I think it is an enduring threat. I think it has received a huge boost from the Taliban's victory in Afghanistan, a huge boost, but I don't think it has ever arisen to the level of an existential threat in the same way that threats that are rooted in one's own soil have the potential to
1: be So my next question is, what is the level of threat from Islamist groups in the Middle East and Africa?
2: Um, there are still many Islamist groups. Al-Qaeda is still around and going strong. Mm. Hmm. ISIS is still around and going strong, not as strong as it was, but but still very significant. There are terrorist groups operating in North Africa and sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, Central Asia. Yeah, so there's no shortage of Islamist groups. I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon, although at the same time, I don't think they'll necessarily endure forever either. If we look at the history of the rise and fall of different terrorist organizations and movements, You know, at some point, particularly if your appeal is essentially theoretical, spiritual, or ideological, as opposed to grounded in, I want my town to be free, you know, something very real and oppressive, right? Uh, You know, if it's not a a question of liberation, then typically those movements are a wasting asset because, you know, the longer that they go on without achieving their objective, the less credibility they have. Um, And so when we look at ideological groups, whether it's anarchists, Marxists, fascists, you know, they typically have, you know, a a limited period of time to deliver the goods, or they ultimately wither away and get replaced by something else. If the underlying reason remains that, that is causing discontent in society, it will probably just find expression in a different way. So, you know, perhaps the the underlying drivers of terrorism won't go away, but they'll find different different forms of expression uh, in those societies, in societies that are experiencing some form of occupation or perceived occupation. Um, I think it's different, right? That that's going to continue until ultimately, you know, they, they are free. Um, You know, and if history teaches us nothing else, it teaches us that there's only a limited amount of time that you can keep people in a society against their will.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Well, as you you just touched upon just a few moments ago, I mean, obviously, there's this growing threat from um, from far-right groups and even conspiracy-based groups like QAnon. And do you feel that that threat or that potential threat from these groups is being taken as seriously as Islamist-inspired terrorism was 20 years ago?
2: No is the short answer to that. I, I think it is being taken more seriously than it was um, by the Trump administration. Clearly, um, so I think we have seen a, a, a change in in the way that uh, the federal authorities are responding. Although, in fairness, to the authorities, not to the Trump administration, but to the the independent institutions, you know, the FBI was investigating things like the plot on Governor Wilmer, and yeah. you know, I mean, they they weren't ignoring right-wing extremist terrorism, far from it. And I, and I think it is, uh, you know, it made its way into policy documents as a potential threat, rempt, as it's called here, uh, called in the United States, racially and ethically motivated terrorism. You know, so it, it, it wasn't being ignored. It perhaps was not being addressed quite as aggressively as it could have been. And that's a profound understatement, actually. Mm. But at the same time, there's some benefits to a softly, softly approach. Um, you know, as we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, you know, if you overreact, if you go in hard, you, you do run the risk of pouring, you know, oil on the fire. So, uh, you, you have to be careful how you respond. You have to give space for dissenting voices to express themselves. Um, and you have to draw a very clear line between radical speech and violent speech more um, violent extremist speech. And I think that's a very difficult line to draw sometimes. And there's plenty of people who want to tiptoe up to the edge, but not cross it. Um, there's a, a, politi- a politician at the moment in um, uh, North Carolina who who's specializes in that, um, you know, the, the, these kind of coded statements that really are, are quite inflammatory, but are just the right side of you know, not being actionable. Um you know, and and I think that's a, that's a definitely a challenge, but I think you do have to allow speech for dissent, even when that dissent is vile, or even when that dissent does aim to tear down the foundations of the society you live in. But talk is cheap. And it's when talk turns to action that I think, you know, you have a moment when you can intervene. Um, and it's particularly difficult to police speech in, in the United States. You know, I mean, the 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 free speech protections under American law are actually stronger than the free speech protections under international human rights law, you know, which does very clearly recognize that there are categories of speech that are not protected. Um, You know, American law is is less convinced of that. So that does pose unique challenges. And, you know, the right wing has always had, and certainly if you go back to the, the last iteration of right wing extremist terrorism in the United States during the Clinton administration in the 90s. You know, they have this narrative of jackbooted federal officials and black helicopters, and Ruby Ridge and, and all of that. And, you know, if you play into that, you do, you know, fan you know, the flames of their rhetoric and and, and of their appeal. So I, I think there are real, real challenges there. But I also think there's a lot you can do by painting, you know, a Nazi as an Nazi. Yeah. You know, it's still not a very popular brand in the United States. And so I think it's worth drawing those comparisons, you know, for all of the the, the, the ease with which that, you know, that, that epithet, epithet that description is thrown around and, you know, in conversation, oh, you're a Nazi or that's, you know, that's fascist. There are objective characteristics to, you know, far-right speech that can be called out and can be compared to, you know, the type of language and rhetoric that we do associate with Nazis and other fascist organizations you know, through history and in the present day. And I think you mm. call that speech out when you see it. Mm. Mm.
1: It's interesting you mentioned black helicopters and, and all that sort of mm. stuff in the 90s, because one of the most popular shows was The X-Files, and then mm. obviously the film Men in Black. And it's just really interesting how, and, and I've talked about this on other podcasts, how kind of conspiracy culture and sort of far right sort of symbolism kind of interlink and then become mainstream and it's just i find that really fascinating
2: no i think i think you're right and and you know in many ways you could argue that the the x-files was sort of one of those watershed cultural moments Mm. but you know at the same time you also have to look to 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 why why was the x-files why did it exist in the first place Mm. why 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 was it a, a a cultural project you know, and mm. that, that obviously was a reaction, you know, lies told by politicians, things like Watergate, Iran, Contra, yeah. all those things, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So it's not like it's just a cultural phenomenon. I mean, we pay a price when people in positions of authority behave badly, mm. you know, whether that's lying to cover up an affair or lying to cover up malpractice. Um, it does erode trust in institutions. And, you know, our institutions have suffered greatly, I think, over the last, you know, Three, four decades from, you know, a systematic uh, and sustained assault on their credibility by oftentimes the people in those institutions themselves. You know, the, the, the lies around the invasion of Iraq, the, you know, as I say, Watergate, Iran-Contra, um, you know, the, the Monica Lewinsky affair. I mean, there's there's a pretty long list. Mm. Uh, you know, relatively recent historical real world examples of politicians lying to the electorate
1: yeah yeah i think yeah that cynicism i mean uh, you know i i I think of shows like the thick of it those kind of comedies Mm -hmm. about british politics and um i always find it's so cynical but at the end of the day you can't blame them and it's and i think that cynicism definitely feeds into a lot of things like you know which led to things like uh Brexit. If you want to sure. consider that a negative thing, because some people might not consider Brexit a negative thing. So, but um, but is no. I find that cynicism of politics really interesting, and I think there is something to be said about you know politicians just routinely sort of lying that kind of makes matters worse on multiple levels, and is probably more of a threat than terrorism is. But you
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it, it's the thing. I mean, trust is incredibly hard to earn. And it's really easy to lose. Yeah. Um, and you know, when you add to that people's desperation to believe in something, mm. um, you know, th- th- there's particularly when it's in the political realm, you're inevitably going to be, you know, disappointed because mm. you know politics is the art of compromise. Um, you know, and, and to get attention, people have to stake out positions that they know they're never going to be able to, you know, um, uh, play out in in, in, in you know the, the real world politics. When they get into government, or, or, or even when they're in conversation with government, a great example of that would be Nick Clegg, right, and his pledge to abolish university fees. I, I don't doubt for a minute that was sincere, yeah. um, you know, but but you know, it crashed up against you know the the, the politics of being in a coalition, you know, particularly with a party that wouldn't be sympathetic to the sorts of things you want to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, you
2: know, and, and, and you know, I, I think it's I think it's very hard to be an honest politician. Um, because it's a job that requires not dishonesty, but it requires being able to renegotiate your position and the values that you are defending to reflect the reality of what needs to happen to achieve a goal. And, you know, that makes sense to people who work in politics. It doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people outside politics.
1: Oh, so true. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work?
2: Well, I think probably the the best place to start and where where I would love for them to start is to to pick up a copy of my book, um, Avoiding the Terrorist Trap: Why Respect for Human Rights is the Key to Defeating Terrorism. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if if they've found some of the arguments that, uh, you know, we've discussed today interesting, they'll certainly find a lot more about uh, uh, along those lines in the book. So so that that would be a great place to start. Um, They can find me on Twitter, um, you know, at TDG Parker um and uh, that that's also uh uh, you know a potential i like to you know i tend to to tweet mostly about terrorism it's mostly factual Mm. stuff um Mm. about these issues uh but mostly sharing information actually that i've you know seen in places that that i thought was useful and insightful um so you know if, if, if if uh my my uh curated um terrorism library would be of interest to you twitter's a great place to go to
1: Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for joining me today.
2: Uh, My pleasure. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.